informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day, and we hope you are safe. Please uh, stay well. Take all the precautions you can. Check on folks. Make sure they're doing okay. And um, as we all make our way through this crisis, this new normal that we're dealing with, we do it together. Let's hang in there together and work together to get through this. Coming up on our program today, as more ag groups are sending USDA their recommendations for assistance during COVID-19, we'll talk with the president and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation, Jim Mulhern, about dairy industries requests. We'll be talking markets with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance, and we'll be talking with Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board about the latest in that uh, development in the legal system on small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Some re- oil refiners had appealed the Tenth Circuit Court ruling. And that appeal was denied. And where do we go from here? We'll talk about it with Kurt Kavarik a little bit later on. Also want to welcome a new affiliate to Adams on Agriculture. We're very happy to have with us KRLL 1420 Real Country, California, Missouri. Welcome aboard. Glad to have KRLL with us here on Adams on Agriculture. And we're very happy to have with us now the president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Marty Smith. Marty, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me this morning. Uh, the cattle industry um, has been dealing with an issue now for some time that is a great concern to producers, and that is pricing practices when it comes to the cattle market and uh, packer versus producer uh, income off this, and there are some big questions raised members of congress have raised questions Uh, those in the cattle industry have raised questions i know you at ncba had sent a letter this week to president trump asking for a broader look into this issue and now usda we heard from secretary purdue saying that they are expanding an already uh, existing investigation into these pricing practices so i I know you have to be uh, glad to get that response from usda uh, certainly, and appreciate their uh, their promptness in getting back to us. Uh, we've also heard from the administration that uh, that they will be supportive of this. Let's talk about specifically what you see as the er- biggest area of concern. Now, I mentioned this is an, an existing investigation because really this goes all the way back to that fire, that Holcomb fire in Kansas last summer. Some questions have been raised, and now you add COVID nineteen to the situation. Yes, and uh, started starting back with the Holcomb fire, we saw a tremendous disconnect in the um, uh, the, the price of boxed beef and what was going on on the retail level. At the same time, we were seeing huge drops in the price of uh, of, of live cattle, and that happened with the Holcomb fire. Then we turn around and face this COVID nineteen situation, and we have the same thing. Um, we have a big disconnect in terms of our pricing mechanism, and we also have a huge disconnect with our futures market um, as we watch the price plummet on the futures at the same time beef prices not only held, but demand went up. And, you know, we should have seen some of that coming back to the ranchers, and we did not. And so we are asking for 
a continuation again of that uh, of, of that investigation, and more specifically related to this disconnect in, in our pricing mechanisms. Yeah, let's explain this again. Those in the beef industry are aware of it, but a lot of consumers may not. They may be thinking, well, uh, this, these must be good times for those in the cattle industry because demand is strong and, uh, you know, people go to the grocery store and they see that the beef is flying off the shelves. And they're saying, well, then probably the, the cattle producers, uh, you know, enjoying more profit from that as well. But as you point out, that is not the case. The demand is there and prices may be going up on the retail side, but not for what the uh, producer's getting. Right, and in fact, exactly the opposite has been happening, and that is the uh, the price received uh, for, for cattle has plummeted, and uh, certainly the futures market went in a, a very sharp direction downward. And uh, so that's that's what we're focused on right now. And again, that happened first back with a Holcomb fire, but even larger now with, uh, with with COVID-19. Some critics of the marketing system say it's not just these events. This is this is a, a sign or an indication of a bigger problem widespread that goes on all the time in the in the market. Do you think that's the case? You know, that is a I've heard that observation. Um, you know, I've also heard a lot of uh, a lot of different opinions as to factors that play into that. Certainly, if we could bring about a better and a more efficient way of um, <laughs> of marketing our cattle and you know redo the way that our market system works, uh, you know that that's a that's pretty far out there, but something that, that perhaps could happen over time. So it's welcome news that there's a broader investigation into this, but investigations are one thing, results are another. And some have pointed to the, back to that Holcomb fire saying, we're still waiting for results from that investigation. Uh, uh, are you frustrated how long that's taking? We had certainly hoped that it would have, t- that it would have concluded much quicker. Um, we had, and that, that is one of the reasons that, we reached out to the president this time. Um, we've asked for not just a continuation of that investigation, but a you know to to have USDA work with the Department of Justice and also to have um, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission look at the CME aspect of it. That's something we had not focused on before, but given the events of, of the last month. We're asking that that be looked at at the same time. Marty, also while we have you, uh, as ag groups reach out to USDA looking for some assistance during this uh, this crisis, what in particular does the beef industry uh, hope to see from USDA? We do hope to see some results back from this investigation. Uh, we hope to see some uh, some assistance with our marketing situation. With respect to some of the stuff that's already been passed, we're working with USDA, and in fact, we have um, retained a group of of the leading livestock economists from around the country, both from our university and land-grant system, but also some from private industry to help analyze where the losses have occurred and what needs to be done to offset some of the losses and some of the setbacks. All right, Marty, thank you for taking time to be with us. Uh, Stay safe and well, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me this morning.
Take care. That's Marty Smith. He's president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Well, a lot of ag groups are uh, sending their recommendations to USDA as far as assistance for their particular sector of agriculture. The dairy industry is another one that is hard hit, and they have sent their recommendations in as well. We'll talk about that with Jim Mulhern, president and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation, as agriculture seeks help during COVID-19. Stay with us. We'll keep you up to date right here on AOA. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So Secretary Purdue announced that they are expanding the investigation into the cattle market. Also saying that USDA wants to provide relief from the COVID-19 crisis to agriculture sectors sooner rather than later, but also brought up the question of how much money is available now and how much won't be available until this summer sometime and then also looking at how this money is going to be used. One of the uh, areas of agriculture that has sent a list of recommendations about their concerns and needs is the dairy industry and joining us now is Jim Mulhern, President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hope you are safe and well. I am, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's been a a wild uh, few weeks here. Uh, for all of us in the country, dealing with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. But certainly in dairy, we've had a huge impact on our markets and a lot of activity on our front trying to influence the policy environment here in Washington to try to uh, provide some assistance to deal with this situation. So what specifically uh, does the dairy industry want to see from USDA in terms of assistance? Well, what we've done, Mike, is work closely across the entire dairy supply chain. So our producer community, National Milk Producers Federation, and the uh, the processor community represented by the International Dairy Foods Association, we've been working closely to try to come up with a unified approach to present to USDA, recognizing that the impact we're seeing is across the entire supply chain. And it's going to take as many tools as possible and action as quickly as possible to, to address this. So we have objecti- uh, objectives and policies on the producer side, as well as assistance uh, for processors to deal with some of the inventory they're going to be carrying and added costs there. So it is a comprehensive approach. On the, on the producer side, um, we're seeing a huge, huge hit on uh, farm income from this situation. You're just looking today, um, we're talking about a drop in over 53 billion dollars in total cash receipts for milk Um, we're looking at usda's own forecasts where we were in mid-february when they did the uh, the wasd forecast uh, the world agricultural supply demand estimate and where we are today using the the dmc decision tool their own department's own forecast on milk prices shows a drop of 5.3 billion dollars that's about a 13 percent drop in income so we've got to deal with that 
and our proposal is to get assistance as quickly as possible, um, payments to producers, uh, $3 a hundredweight payment for the producers who will reduce their production uh, by 10% during this period, a six-month period than when we just don't need all the milk that we're producing right now. I've had questions from listeners when they've heard the stories about milk dumping going on in Wisconsin, and, and they've asked the question, why is there such a, a surplus? Uh, are we consuming less? Uh, they go to the grocery store, and they may at times see, sh- you know, have to wait for the milk uh, shelves to get restocked, and they're wondering uh, why would there be all this big change? Could you explain uh, what's happening throughout the system? I know loss of, you know, that the school cafeterias, schools being closed has had a big impact. What are some other things really impacting this situation? Well, we're seeing a a double um, whammy here with not only schools, but also the food service market. So we're in this strange situation where retail demand has actually strengthened. Um, and certainly in the first couple of weeks of this situation, you had panic buying, stores put limits on fluid milk purchases because they were running out. Uh, we quickly raced to fill that need as an industry. Uh, I think some stores were too slow in getting their signs down on limiting fluid milk purchases. Um, but and, and the fluid milk sales have kind of settled back to about normal levels. I think they're up a little bit over in the same week year over year. Uh, but they have dropped back a little bit from what they were in the first two weeks of the situation. Meanwhile, what has disappeared is the food service market, and folks need to understand how huge that is to our industry. Fully 60% of the butter sold in America, for example, is sold in the away-from-home market. That's food service, institutional, um, baking, food manufacturing. Um, much of that has just disappeared because restaurants, food service is not open. The cheese, it's a similar story. About half the cheese, nearly half the cheese um, sold in this country goes to food service. So that market channel has is where the collapse has occurred. Retail going strong, food service virtually non-existent, and you have a lot of manufacturers who are geared you know, toward the food service market. They make product for that market. They don't package in retail ready consumer pack. So this has been a huge challenge for the entire supply chain, the entire industry. But the bottom line is with that loss in food service, we have at least 10, and I think it's closer to 15% more milk being produced over this next next six months than we're going to have a market for. So regardless of, of what we do, there is going to be milk dumped. And it's not just in the Midwest. It started in the Northeast. It is going all across the country. Uh, every part of the country is going to see milk dump because there's not a market for it. That's why we've got to try to bring bring production, throttle it back a little bit uh, just to get through this situation, and then we can hopefully get back to normal as, as soon as possible. We're talking with Jim Mulhern, President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation. So, Jim, you, you talk about cutting production. We've heard that, you know, culling cows, uh, there's not a, a great market situation perhaps there either, uh, what's the best way to cut production? Well, the best way to cut production is, is uh, there are several things that producers can do, and they know this better than better than I do, frankly, to reduce production without culling cows. You know, the folks who are doing 3x milking can go to 2x, cutting back feed rations. The, the, probably the most significant thing that I think people are going to be doing in this situation is drying off cows earlier. Um, that's going to give you ability to reduce your output um, without cha- making long-term changes uh, in your operations. So folks who, who want to keep their, you know, roughly their, their current um, size level 
um, will make some management changes to reduce production, won't require um, a lot of culling. Some folks will cull, uh, you know, but that's all, that's all going to depend, to your point, on the market. And right now that market is not very good for cull cows. You know, there's never a good time for this, but especially in the dairy industry, uh, I mean, you were coming off several down years already and we're just starting to see some light of uh, hope and optimism that things were starting to turn around and this hit so it's not like you can come you're coming off five really good years that you you can kind of uh producers can live off of they're coming off five really tough years that's it is like a meteor hitting the earth for us um just what you said mike the last five years have not been good years um late last year prices did strengthen we had the highest um, average all milk price in the U.S. in 2019 than we've had since 2014. And that was a result of really the second half of the year where we saw uh, prices getting better. And into the first quarter of this year, the, the first two months of this year, you know, prices were looking pretty good. And now once the, once the pandemic hit and this, this um, uh, demand drop off, demand disappearance really um, has occurred, you know, we've seen the, you know, the forecast on the all milk price Back in um, early March, just before this hit, we were looking at about $18.25 for the all-milk price average in the U.S. That's nationwide. Um, you know, all product, all classes, all milk, eighteen twenty-five for the year. You know, as of last week, that had dropped to about $16. So, um, and it could go lower. That's, that's the challenge we have. So we're looking at um, this year at this point, being um, the worst year in the last five. And that's really saying something because the last five have not been good. So, Jim, you have uh, Secretary Purdue sitting here trying to hearing from all these different sectors of agriculture needing assistance. And he's saying, I've only got this much money and I don't even have as much as you think I do right now. Some I can't even use till this summer. Uh, so some tough decisions. Uh, are you concerned about how this is going to uh, be prioritized and, and put to use? I'm sure I am, and I think all of us in agriculture are. Number one, I'm concerned about the industry um, being unified. Um, the, the reality is that uh, if we're not unified as an industry, um, we're going to get less, and that's one of the reasons that I worked hard and my counterparts at IDFA worked hard to pull together a national uh, plan that we could present to the secretary. It's a national plan. It's not going to address every single issue in every part of the country. Uh, that's the nature of trying to put something together as national organizations. Um, so nothing is perfect, and I would say that uh, perfect is the enemy of the very good in this case. Um, and I think things will evolve as we go through the process. But the number one challenge is, is for folks to, to back a plan, back this approach, to try to get uh, assistance to agriculture, assistance to dairy, rather. Um, agriculture, every group is in looking for assistance, and it will be a challenge for the department to to meet all of the, um, the the needs that are out there. there. There is no question. Congress may have to appropriate even additional dollars. We put forward a plan that we know will help address, help offset some of the damage in dairy. It is not going to fill the hole completely, but it's going to be a big, big help for us. So we're hoping that the department will move as quickly as possible. Well, Jim, thank you for your time and uh, all of your efforts, and uh, stay safe, and we'll stay in touch with you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Jim Mulhern, President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation. Up next, we take a look at markets with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. You're listening to AOA. Heat. 
drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, so we've talked Today now with Marty Smith, President of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and Jim Mulhern, President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation, taking a look at the uh, the cattle and dairy sectors and their concerns during COVID-19 and uh, assistance they're looking for. Uh, let's look now at the impact on the grain side. Joining us now is Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst for Rombo AgriFinance. Steve, thanks for being with us. Hope you are well. I am. Thank you, Mike. Good to talk to you. Yes, we're doing well. I hope you are all doing that well as well at home too. Yep. Yep. All hunker down here as we <laughs> look at how how our world continues to change and the impact on agriculture. And if anyone questioned how important the ethanol industry has become to yeah. uh, the corn market, they're they're finding out now, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's when you look at the the GNO side or the grain oil seeds you know, sector, you know, for, for all practical purposes, we're not as, we're not consumer facing like, like beef and dairy, you know, immediately. And so that, that insulates us a little bit. And I'm going to say that from, you know, the consumer and from all of the, um, what should I say, all all of the the issues surrounding COVID-19. So that's sort of the good news. But as your question says right up front, the, the one exception to that is ethanol because it is it is directly consumer facing and and the corn is directly into crude oil, and we've seen you know a huge drop off in in ethanol production. Uh, we've seen a, a pretty substantial buildup in stocks of ethanol, which I believe has got to the lo- highest points ever, if I'm not mistaken. We haven't seen this week's numbers yet, but we saw last week's was way above uh, where we had seen before, and so that's you know that's the most troubling spots that's the most you know concerning spot when we look at corn markets and in the impacts it have and i and i and i'm going to just talk about this for a second but one of the things we did last fall when we when we released our baseline outlook we did just that and looked at what would happen if we went back to pre-mandate levels for corn corn usage for ethanol which we conservatively estimated about three billion bushels and 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 the reason for that was because one, if the mandate went away, we know there's, this has been a tumultuous time for ethanol anyway, um, and it, it moved the, you know, the, the price of corn, uh, national average price of corn, back in, back in the old range of 2 to $3. So that's a little troubling. Now, granted, we're not there yet, uh, but it does, it certainly pointed out to us the impact that, that the ethanol market has on, on, um, on the corn market. And just one last thing about ethanol. I think one of the things we have to acknowledge as well is that you know, ethanol was was struggling before we got the COVID-19, and this has just exacerbated those problems that we see. And, you know, I think there's one thing we have to remember, and, and we don't know the timing on this. We don't know how long we're going to be at stay-at-home orders, how long there'll be, you know, we'll be social distancing, how long we get a vaccine, how long, all those things. But I think once we get, you know, once 
we get sort of a, I'm going to call it an all clear for lack of a better term, and I'm certainly not saying that's going to happen anytime soon, but it does give us an opportunity that probably ethanol will and gasoline consumption will bounce back, but I think it's probably going to be a slow a slow back because I think consumers are, are a little wary now, particularly if you live in a big city. So something to keep yeah. in mind. And closing plants, idling plants, which are going on, uh, that yeah. also impacts DDGs, which impacts, you know, uh, livestock yep. feed. Right, and that's and that's the other piece that I think we – and there's actually another compact on CO2, an impact on CO2. You know, the DDG market and talking to our animal protein people yesterday, you know, beef producers in particular who are big users of DDG are, are trying to stockpile as much as they can if they can get it. Uh, the price has gone up rapidly. Supplies have dwindled, and, the, you know, their, the ability to obtain it has gotten really, really tight. And so the, in the, the part of that that's probably a little bit of a bright spot for corn is that you probably will see a little bit of more corn feeding. Uh, that's one of the reasons we've seen the meal, the soybean meal market pop back up because we expect a little more protein, uh, I mean, obviously more protein needed in that ration. So particularly for poultry and pork folks, uh, we'll probably see a little bit more corn and a little bit more meal. So that would be a little bit of the bright spot of uh, the DDG supply constraint. Uh, but the other thing that's happening, too, is CO2. Uh, you are not getting, you know, and this comes off both dry mills and wet mills, and that CO2 is a, an extremely important input into lots and lots of industries. Uh, one of the things that's hitting uh, from an agricultural point of view, that is hitting lots of food industries because they do use CO2, uh, think of the soft drink industry. But it, it, we're seeing packing plants are having difficulties finding enough CO2 for their operation. So that's become a, a, a prized commodity as well. So lots of ramifications around the ethanol issue, which I think we probably all, we thought about ethanol alone and by itself, and we didn't think about the other things that come out of that. Corn oil also is one of the things that we're seeing. You know, some of the plants are, are extracting the germ and selling the germ for, for oil production. So you're seeing a little a little bit of supply constraint on the oil side as well. So there are lots of ramifications that we probably it's the, the the unintended consequences we didn't think about. We're talking with Steve Nicholson with Robo Agrofinance. All right, Steve. So we already have some farmers in the field, uh, others yep. very close to getting there. So planting is starting. Uh, <laughs> many of them still have bins that are full from last year, and yeah. we have this market yeah. the way it is right now. I mean. Uh, how do you how do you market? How do you plan through this? Yeah, no, I, I think I'll just say one thing. I, it, I think it all gives our heart good. At least here in St. Louis, today, it's sunny. It's cool, but it's sunny, and I think we're all happy to see farmers get in the field and plant. At least as some normalcy to this uh, very odd situation we're in. Um, I think we have talked about that just in the last couple of days, and I think there's some. Again, I point to the calendar and think about the calendar. Um, you know, we are entering that time of year where we can't seem to find, uh, you know, merchandisers or elevators can't seem to find enough grain. Uh, and so, and, and precisely because farmers are not in the fields, they're not thinking about that, they're thinking about grain. So I would certainly recommend to producers uh, be paying attention. Make sure your grain merchandiser knows you have grain on the farm. He, probably, he or she probably knows that already, but I would certainly encourage you to don't take your eye off the ball, that ball, you know, during planting season. And I, I know that's easier said than done, but I certainly want to encourage that. I think the other thing to think about, and, and as, you know, you sit in Illinois and think about as you go east of you, um, you know, the eastern corn belt is running out of, of grain, of, of you know, corn, 
uh, and and wheat and soybeans all, and so they're going to be reaching farther back west to find to find grain to move into the southeastern poultry markets and to move into their own markets there for both livestock and processing. Now that may not happen until we get through planting, but it, I think that's one that's the other opportunity. It may not we may not see that in futures, but we're definitely going to see that in the basis side, and that's maybe your opportunity. Maybe you get some basis contracts in place and wait for the futures market to to to, uh, to come back on you a little come back for you a little bit. The third thing I would say is that we need to watch very carefully, and this has impact both on futures and basis. One of the things we're starting to see out of the Black Sea area, and this is particularly dealing with wheat, uh, but corn is going to get drug into this probably. You see Ukraine, you see Kazakhstan, and you see Russia all putting on export quotas. Russia was the first, did it for wheat, maize, uh, sorghum, rye, and a, and a mixed grain uh, product as well called, I want to say millet, but that's not right. But, you know, with that, we're starting, and, and the reason they did that was twofold. They saw internal flour prices skyrocket, internal wheat prices skyrocket, and their concern is, of course, food supply and food price to consumers. And so I think that's the other thing to think about is that that does help, potentially helps our exports, and we've seen a few more corn and wheat sales over the last couple of weeks because you, countries like China, and we'll pick on China a little bit, you know, I think are starting to become worried about as countries contract and they worry about food supplies and food prices of their consumers, they're going to, to pull in. And that is an opportunity for us in the export market because we do have plenty and we are self-sufficient food where a lot of places in the world aren't. And that's a good thing for us as the U.S. We are self-sufficient. We can feed ourselves. Other places in the world can't. And so I think that's one thing to watch and where opportunities might come up a little bit farther down the road after we get to the planting season. And real quick, uh, Steve, your thoughts yep. on the planning intentions numbers. Uh, the feelings kind of been that the, <laughs> we'll be under the 97 uh, figure yeah. that the USDA project and probably above what the 83.5 on soybeans. is. Would you agree with that? No. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think 97 is the highest number for the year. Um, we'll start to see it contract a little bit. Now, Mother Nature will have a lot to say about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is that we're seeing you know, soybean prices did come up a little bit after that report. Uh, and even before that report, because of what's happening with meal, and so that might entice a few more people to to do with, uh, you know, to put a few more soybeans in rather than corn. Also, soybeans are cheaper to put in than corn. So I think you will see those numbers, just as you said in your question, corn contract a little bit and beans maybe come up a little bit before it's all said and done. But the, the fact is, when you look at the economics of row crop production today, uh, it is not a very happy picture, and that's that's disappointing and frustrating all at the same time. Yeah, so many uh, challenges and issues uh, that we're all dealing with from COVID-19 and certainly agriculture uh, getting hit hard as well. All right, Steve, thanks a lot. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll stay in touch with you. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Mike. Same to you. Stay safe and stay well. Take care. Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst with Rabo AgriFinance. Well, uh, a few uh, oil refineries appealed that 10th Circuit Court decision that basically said EPA was not handling these uh, small refinery exemptions correctly. Uh, That appeal by the oil industry, as most had projected, was denied. Where do we go from here? Is this going to wind up at the Supreme Court level? Uh, And in the meantime, what does it mean for the the struggling biofuels industry? We're going to talk about it with Kurt Kabarik with the National Biodiesel Board. That's coming up next right here on AOA. 
Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Okay, so the Tenth Circuit Court ruled that EPA was not handing out these small refinery exemptions uh, as they should, ruled against their their way of doing it. Uh, so that was good news for the biofuels industry. Then had to wait out, kind of sweat out whether or not the administration would appeal the decision. They chose not to. But some oil refineries did appeal it, and as many had predicted, that appeal has been denied. So where do we go from here? Kurt Kabarik is with us, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, good to talk with you. Hope you are well. Uh, where do we go from here now on this issue? Uh, good morning, Mike. Glad to be with you. Well, uh, so when the Tenth Circuit Court uh, denied the petition to rehear the case, uh, that began basically a 90-day clock, uh, wherein if any of the parties uh, to the case want to have the uh, case heard by the Supreme Court, they need to file a petition of what's called cert with the Supreme Court to ask them to to take it up. So they have 90 days to decide whether they're going to do that. I presume that the refining industries who are a party to the case will do that regardless of the merits, uh, only because I think their motivation here is to not only to win and uh, you know continue to keep their small refinery exemptions, but to delay and, and help the EPA by kicking this can down the road um, as, as long as possible. I don't think that's in anyone's interest because at the end of the day, I think uh, the Supreme Court is unlikely to hear this. There's, there's really no uh, merit to any argument that this is a case that the Supreme Court should take up, despite the fact that refiners are, are trying to make that case. Uh, so in the end, if, if the Tenth Circuit is, is ultimately left to stand, and it's, a, it's just simply 12 months from now uh, when EPA has to go ahead and enforce that uh, decision nationally. That's doing a disservice to everybody who, who is in the business uh, of the renewable fuel standard, both refiners and uh, biofuels producers. So our appeal to the EPA has been, listen, the, the court has spoken. You, you didn't join the appeal, and, and we, we applaud that. We appreciate that. Uh, we believe that was the right choice. And now that the Tenth Circuit has refused to hear it, there's there's no realistic, conceivable way that the Supreme Court is going to hear this case. Uh, it's in the interest of, of everyone, a party to the RFS, to to to, to declare the the small refiner exemption program that was created under Administrator Pruitt finally dead, and let's return the program to the integrity that Congress intended when they created the program. But basically what you're saying is what EPA can do and may be doing is as long as anyone's filing some kind of an appeal, as long as the oil industry does that, even if it doesn't have much of a chance of being uh, of, of their winning, it gives EPA cover for not making any changes in their policy until they can say, well, we're waiting for the all the uh, uh, the 
the legal maneuverings to exhaust themselves before we make a decision on this. So it gives them cover to do nothing and, and just keep way they are. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, one of the things that EPA is best at is, is doing nothing, uh, particularly if it helps the refining industry avoid their obligations under the program. And um, they put out a press release a week ago. Uh, essentially saying just that, that while they recognize that uh, the Tenth Circuit told them that they were uh, violating the statute by granting uh, small refiner exemptions the, in the way that they were, uh, they decided, you know what, we're not, going to, we're not going to implement this in any way until all the courts have spoken on this, which is contrary to how they've interpreted court decisions previously. When the court decision came out in favor of the re- re- refiners, they couldn't act quick enough to implement that. So it's it's really telling uh, with this EPA and this leadership, you know, w- which which side of this program they come down on. Yeah, we're talking to Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, maybe a, a, a glimmer of good news. We're we're hearing that maybe Russia and Saudi Arabia may come to some kind of a deal uh, in, in their oil war, which has certainly depressed oil prices. Had a huge impact uh, while most of us go to the pump and we're happy that we're seeing fuel prices down but we know it's really hurting uh, the biofuels industry that's right you know low prices um while good for the consumer make it a little bit harder for us uh but i think a bigger issue in in what's going on with the economics right now is simply uh, a result of the lack of demand uh driven by you know obviously the health concerns in response to the coronavirus. So unless and until we kind of get beyond the, the health crisis related to this, uh, get the economy back up and running, get people back to work, kids back into school, uh, get the economy uh, going full steam ahead again, we are going to continue to suffer as a result of the lack of demand for, uh, for, for, for fuel. Now, ours in the biodiesel world and, and diesel particularly isn't as significant as gasoline. I think gasoline you're seeing some folks say that uh, demand is, is down 50 to 70%. Uh, diesel fuel, because it's a different uh, market and long haul trucking and with, with everyone having packages delivered and groceries delivered, et cetera, you know, the reduction in diesel demand uh, might be a little bit less, maybe 20 to 30%. But what that does mean is that's, that's market demand, loss for uh, biodiesel. So, you know, we're looking at this year, um, depending on when we come out of this, you know, 10 to 15% reduction in demand for biodiesel. That could be a couple hundred million gallons. As you know, that that could be, you know, a handful of plants that either are um, turned off or certainly, you know, industry-wide capacity reduction. You know, we've been Unfortunately, you know, we've been in a couple years of policy uncertainty, whether it was the lapse in the tax credit or the shenanigans around implementation of the renewable fuel standard. You know, we were able to get the tax credit extended at the end of the year, prospective for three years. We felt great about that. Uh, we're looking forward to certainty and growth. We, we felt like the Tenth Circuit decision on the RFS gave us some certainty, and now we have this. So it's just another challenge we're going to work through. Very good. All right, Kurt, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Stay safe. You bet. Thank you. You too. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Thanks for joining us. Be safe, everyone. Again, we welcome KRLL, California, Missouri, to Adams on Agriculture. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. 
Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.